So we do begin today the beautiful and the rich and the still season of Advent, one of my favorite times of the year in the church. It's also the new year. We turn over liturgical year this Sunday. And we have a long Advent this year especially. I always say that Advent expands and contracts like a Wisconsin waistline. So that means that uh, this year it's, uh, it's as long as it could possibly be. It's, it's a fat Advent this year, okay? So to get us started with the season and with the themes, what I'll do this morning is talk a little bit about the first reading from Isaiah the prophet, who is very much a tone setter for us throughout the season. And I'll end a little bit with tying that to the collect, the opening prayer, which is rich and ancient and beautiful with all these wonderful themes for us to pray with. So to Isaiah, which began us at the Mass today. Some context about Isaiah is helpful to understand the power, if you will, in what might be almost counterintuitive nature of this message when it was first proclaimed. Isaiah lived, as best we can tell, in the 700s BC, so a long, long time ago, which means that this piece of text we hear this morning is among the oldest that we have in the scriptures in an unedited form, so it goes back a long, long way. This is a very, very old document. He lived probably across, let's say, three or so kings of Judea in the southern kingdom. He lived in Jerusalem, which was a small city at the time, but nonetheless, it was a place of notoriety in its day. And he lived across situations where, frankly, for decades of his life, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judea lived under the constant threat of war. There was always some problem with the military, always some national threat, always some difficulty about the security of this little bitty nation called Judea. So for a while, at first, there was a question of the northern kingdoms which broke away and they got taken over by Damascus. So that was this big military victory which sent the southern kingdom shuddering for protection. And they found it temporarily in Egypt, which didn't work out so well. And then they found it with the Assyrians who conquered the northerners and said to the Judeans, you are next unless you pay us tribute, which they did. So on this went for years and years back and forth. So this little bitty hilltop and a patch of desert called Jerusalem, always found itself in the defensive. And in this position of being stuck between the neighboring powers of the Egyptians, the Assyrians, later the Babylonians, so they could never stand on their own two feet. It was humiliating. It was exhausting. It was shameful. And Isaiah, who in his role as prophet would have been an advisor to the kings of his day, that's what prophets often did, would often have to work through with the kings the question of, what do we do now? Who do we align with? Where are we going to go? So constantly under threat, this was the difficulty. Not only that, Isaiah watched the kings come and go who had different notions of piety about the covenant. Some were very faithful and tried to be reformers, which were very much in Isaiah's camp. Others were not interested. They weren't interested in religious observance. They adopted pagan customs, which was a heartbreak for Isaiah. So they were not an always faithful people. They were never a militarily strong people they were always at risk of being run over by somebody else. This was their existence for decades and decades, and it was exhausting and had worn the nation out. In all of that context of the day, this reading comes to them. Isaiah prays, and the Lord inspires and delivers to his chosen people in the little southern kingdom these interesting and important words. What does Isaiah say to them, this broken, weary, worn-out people, disgusted with the ongoing alliances of military questions? God says to them, the day is going to come when I'll establish this little hilltop called Jerusalem as the highest mountain around. You're going to be so strong in your reputation, 
and you're standing that eventually the nations, your neighbors, the ones you're always afraid of, frankly, they'll stream toward you. They'll want to be with you. They'll want to understand you. They'll want to honor you. And not only that, God says very famously at the end of our passage, a day is going to come when you'll have a just ruler and a just society with righteousness that is peaceful. They're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There will be peace, peace, peace. This is the message that Isaiah delivers to a broken people. Now, a couple of things are going to follow from that. If you live in 7th century B.C. Judea, you can say, first of all, well, either he's crazy, he's looking around, that makes no sense, or maybe God is indeed onto something. He really is going to help us and protect us. So it was a message of hope and something they could stand firm on as a people. But also, and they began to figure this out as they sat with his words more and more, they realized clearly with a message like that, this is not something we can do on our own. We can't accomplish that. We want it, we chase it, we've been looking for it, and been working, 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 and falling short, falling short, falling short. And so what does the people understand? That these are bold promises that God wants to do for them, and they have been faced with their own inability to do it on their own. You might say they are confronted with their own poverty as people. They can't pull it off. God has to do this. They cannot do it on their own. So they need, guess what? A Messiah, a Savior, a bringer of peace, a bringer of justice, a bringer of a new era, a bringer of the crossing over into the next realm that they all hunger for. They know their limits with a reading like this, and they're inspired by the promise of what God can do for his little nation. Grand thing to think about in such a very messy, exhausting period of history. I would say, as we start out Advent here in 2022, that it is always good to remember this simple fact that I often repeat. God always speaks to us in the present tense. This is not just old dead parchment. This is the living word of God that speaks to us right now in our situation. He speaks a word to the weary, you might say. Are there parallels between us and 7th century B.C. Judea? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Let's see, let's review the year for just a second, since we turn over the year here. So a year ago at this time, we first learned the word Omicron, and in Westman I thought it was the restaurant. <laughs> Realized that it was a disaster and not a restaurant. That took us through last November, December, January, February, and upended everybody's lives, something fierce. So we had that whole disaster. As that was maybe winding down, to all of our horror in the West, Russia invades the Ukraine, which is still an ongoing disaster. That's occupied our attention, our geopolitical drama. We find ourselves the same question of alliances, who is going to be with who, what's it mean for world peace, what's it mean for our children who are across the sea in harm's way. It's a mess. And it breaks hearts. The whole scene is sad, to put it mildly. On the summer went with inflation and price problems and supply chain problems and the market going up and down like a yo-yo, wiping out retirement accounts all along the way. And as we got into the fall, we endured an election cycle, which after all of the money and time that we spent, we wound up almost where we started before it began. And if all that wasn't bad enough, this year the Packers are terrible. <laughs> you can rank those if you want, but you get the idea. 
The point is, I do not think that we are wrong to understand that we too might be kind of worn out. The world is wearisome. So are we not people who, like the Judeans, long for peace and long for justice and long for a whole world because it's a broken world and long for health and prosperity and goodness that are least are protected and a society is justly ordered and people live as they say? We, we long for this coming of a new world. We're just like the old people of Judea a long time ago. So when God speaks to us today, I'm going to take swords and beat them into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and I'm going to establish a just order in your midst so that one day all the nations will come to you, my little flock, and want your wisdom. Our reaction might be, are you kidding? Or it might be like the people of Judea, that sounds pretty good. Maybe I want that. And part two, importantly, I realize I cannot get there on my own. We have worked and worked all year in 2022, and where's it gotten us? Where we started, pretty much. Because on our own, and the human devices, we always wind up, guess what, where you started. But not so with God. So, we are people who, long story short, want the Messiah. Advent, among other things, among all of its important themes would be this one at the opener. It's, one, a time to be radically aware of our poverty as people, as a nation, as a world, as a human race, of all that is broken, and we know it in spades, don't we? So we must sit with the reality and awareness of all that we lack, all that we want, all that we hunger for, all that we work for, all that we thirst for, all that we desire. We have to be aware of our heartfelt burning desires for what is better. God puts those desires in our hearts because we, as humans, search for God, whether we believe in him or not, that's what we do. That's how he makes us. So we have to be aware of our ache, one. Two, be tremendously inspired by his promises to fill them, to satisfy the ache, to make the world better. And we say to ourselves, just like the Judeans, you know, we can't pull this off on our own. I mean, we try. I give up. I give up. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. Lord, come and save us. Lord, come and save us. That's what Advent means, you know, it means an arrival, it means a coming. And so the whole church cries out for all these weeks of this particular season, we are in poverty and you can make us wealthy, we are poor and you can make us rich in grace, we are empty and you can make us full. Come, Lord Jesus, because we realize that on our own we're exhausted and we can't do it without you. Those are our seasonal overarching themes our poverty and his generosity and desire to come and help us with all these things. Which I guess leads us to the, the colic, the opening prayer, which I'll mention again. This is an old prayer that goes way back in the first centuries of the Roman church, and it's beautiful, and it speaks a little bit to this dynamic, and I, and I think in part it's supposed to call us to a sense of desire and to rouse us again if we are worn out by life. I am. You probably are, let's be honest. In the face of that, what does one do? Well, one comes to Advent. What's the prayer say? Grant your faithful, that's us. We pray, Almighty God, that's not us. That's the first lesson. You laugh, but this is, this is really a thing to be internalized, right? Almighty God, grant us the resolve to run forth to meet your Christ. Energize us. Give us strength. Give us conviction. Give us energy. I want to run forth to meet the Lord. I don't want to be a passive spectator. 
But Lord, I'm wiped out. I don't know if I can do that anymore. And if one sits in that, that space of being wiped out, then one wants the season to revive us. So we ask him to give us the energy to realize what we really want. We want him. And not only that, we're going to run forth to meet your Christ with righteous deeds that is coming. So when we run to meet him, we want to have in our hands all of our works for a better world. Working for justice, working for goodness, working for kindness, working for truth, working for beauty, to protect the human person wherever we find it, right? So I want to find you, Lord. I want to run at you and to you within my hands all of my good deeds so that gathered at his right hand, they may be worthy to possess the heavenly kingdom. In the ancient world, at the right was the place of wealth. It was the place of protection, the place of goodness. So we're like this morning, a little flock under his outstretched right hand. Like Judea of old, in the face of all their enemies, he puts his hand outstretched to bless and say, I want you gathered at my right, where you're saved and rescued and precious and made whole. What's on the left in the ancient world, whatever is evil, bad, unsafe, harmful, he pushes it all away from us, his flock at his right. Because where do we ultimately want to wind up in the next life? We want to possess the heavenly kingdom, which starts now under his right hand. If we're worn out by life or broken at all, we must sit with these themes. Advent is a time to sit with these themes. Broken, yes, but is God rich and powerful? Tremendously. Where do we want to be? At his right hand with righteous deeds. And I want to hunger and desire for the world that is good, knowing that I cannot do it on my own. So I say, we say, the church says, come and save us. We want the Messiah. We want him now. Waste no time, Lord. Your people awaits a better world that we cannot make on our own. So you come and you do it. That's kind of the church's ultimate cry of surrender that says we want him to come. May he come without delay and find us ready with righteous deeds.